Well, good morning. I, too, want to welcome you to Grace. We're really glad that you are here this morning. And if you're a guest or visitor, would you please fill out the card in the seat pocket in front of you and just let us know about your visit here. We would love to know how we can serve you. And if there's anything we can pray for you about, we take delight in praying for the needs of our congregation. And we do it, we do it literally every day. And so uh, let us know how we can pray for you uh, by using those cards. Well, this morning we are going, we're continuing in our series um, in 1 Peter, and we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, 9 through 17 this morning. And we're going to talk about living in light of Jesus' return. Now, I want to start off with a, with a story, and I'm going to take you back to the year 1970. In that year, a 39-year-old evangelist by the name of Hal Lindsey published a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. I'd be curious, how many of you have read that book? You're dating yourself a little bit if you raise your hand. That's okay. Uh, That book was a phenomenon back then. And what he did, for those of you who have not read the book, is that he compared end-time prophecies in the Bible with current events that were taking place in the 1960s. And what he was saying is that uh, these tumultuous events that were taking place in the 1960s had been predicted many years in advance in the Bible. And he wanted to show that the events taking place in the 60s were signposts that Jesus' return was very near. And he didn't come up with a hard and fast date, but he said, you know, like it's near like it could take place in the 1980s. And 1988 was a significant year for him, although he did not officially set a date. But he was so specific in his interpretation of biblical symbols that he would compare things in Revelation chapter 9 to military hardware. For instance, he said that the scorpion, uh, the the, uh, uh, locusts in Revelation 9 were like Apache helicopters. So people were making very specific interpretations based upon the symbolism that he was bringing forth in the book of Revelation. Well, his book was a phenomenon that set forth all sorts of product lines, and one of those product lines was a report that he is continuing to do, even though Hal Lindsey is in his his 90s. Now, when Bantam, the paperback publisher, picked up his book, it just went through the roof in terms of sales, and today his book is the 55th best-selling book of modern times. It was a phenomenon. So you all know what happened after that. Uh, The Left Behind series took place, and there were a lot of books in the whole Left Behind series, and it also increased interest in, I mean, huge interest in end times events and in the events surrounding the return of Jesus Christ. Well, now that these were out, it started making the authors some serious money. And I will say that today, this has become a whole industry. The Left Behind series came up, I think their, their sales ended up being in excess of 80 million, like 80 million units. But people started growing really uncomfortable with the prophecy industry because the books started getting very sensationalized, and people began feeling that they were trivializing the Bible. So you would have these cartoonish ideas about end times events. And I can remember talking to some teens who read Left Behind the Kids, and they're going, wait, so you're kidding me. So 
Like, I'm in the last generation? Like, that means I won't have a career, I won't get married? And, and they were becoming very uh, sort of upset by that, that notion and that idea. And this led to a definite sense of prophecy fatigue. Prophecy fatigue is when everybody has their different ideas about prophetic events, and everybody's passionate about their particular position, but nobody has the definitive view because everybody is so uh, skilled in articulating their particular view. So I've heard people say, you know what, I just don't even want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. These people have their view. These people have their view. I don't know which one is right. I'm not going to spend a lot of time getting into it. And I kind of feel like some of the people who do end up being conspiratorial. It's like a conspiracy theory in the way they approach it. I'm just going to be agnostic about end times events. However, Jesus did teach on his second coming. Jesus taught extensively about it in Matthew chapter 25 and in Mark chapter 13. Jesus' sermon in those chapters is long in the Bible, and I would suspect that the Bible only contains part of that entire sermon, that it was a long sermon. Why would Jesus spend so much time talking about his second coming? Here's the reason why. He wanted to make sure his disciples and us understand that he is the king who is returning. And as the returning king, he wants us to be anticipating his return, prepared for his return, and passionate about the fact that he will return. And so Peter, in his book, brings up the idea of the return of Christ. And in this chapter, he wants us to, to value Jesus' return that's coming so that we will do certain things in the present. So let's look at how, how Peter describes this. We begin with an affirmation. The affirmation is that Jesus is coming, and he could come back at any moment. Here's what he says. The end of all things is at hand. Now, that is a very challenging verse to embrace, right? Because this verse, on the face of it, raises all sorts of questions. The end of all things sounds as if Jesus is coming to destroy the good. And that sounds disturbing. There's a lot of good in this world. Like you, I have been amazed at the natural beauty that we have just in, in our country. I've hiked down into the Grand Canyon, loved it, beautiful place. I've hiked to the mountains of Colorado, loved it, very beautiful place. I've enjoyed canoeing down rivers. And so when we think about the end of all things is at hand, it almost sounds as if Jesus is coming to, to destroy the good. That's disturbing. At the same time, there's a lot of human good in this world. My kids give me a hard time because when they were little, I used to drag them to museums in London, New York, and Washington, D.C. We would always have to go to the art museum that was in town. And my kids, even to this day, they're in their 30s, they'll say, Dad, do you remember when you drug us to the National Art Gallery when we were three years old? Guilty as charged. I love the arts. So when you read this, it sounds as if Jesus is coming to destroy not just the natural good, but also the human good, and that, that's possibly disturbing. Even worse, the terminology seems, seems sort of wrong. 
this was written in 62 AD, and we live in, we live in the year 2019, and uh, that's a long time to say that the end of all things is at hand or near. You know, if I told my wife, oh, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I said, sweetheart, I'm, I'm about home. I'll be home in just a moment. And I didn't get back till midnight. She would say, in what sense were you near our house when you said that? That doesn't seem near to me. And about 1950 years does not seem near. So sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll read this and it's kind of confusing. And then you'll, you'll think about how this idea is parodied the way it was in The Simpsons, where Homer Simpson had his sandwich board, the end is near. Okay? So... It, these, are, these are hard words to kind of wrap our arms around and fully understand. All I'm saying is the nearness of Jesus' return is not an easy concept for us to wrap our arms around in the year 2019. So let me see if we can define this in a very precise way. The Greek word end is the word teleos, and it literally means the purpose or end for which something is made. It is a purpose word that looks toward the future. It also means the climax toward which something is moving. So in this case, the, the end means culmination, climax, consummation. That gives us a very different sense about Jesus' return. Rather than us thinking about a scorched earth return where everything gets utterly destroyed, and what this, this says is that the climax of all things, the culmination of all things, the, the, the new beginning is about to take, to take place. And that's what Jesus' return is about in the, in the largest possible sense. When Jesus returns, he restores his creation to what it was intended to be at the beginning. He's going to restore humanity to what it was intended to be at the beginning. Uh, the present universe will be refashioned, refitted, remade, into the new heavens and the new earth, and Jesus will rule himself from this place called the new Jerusalem. So the idea is the end of all things means the climax, the culmination of all things is about ready to come. That's way more encouraging. Uh, I think <clears throat> we should also go back to the sense in which it's, it's near. Because it's, ne it's, it's near not like there's this succession of events and, hey, guess what, guys? Jesus could come by Thanksgiving of this year or Christmas. Not near in that sense. But it's near in the sense that everything has been done that needs to be done for Jesus to return. What are those things? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Atoning for the guilt of humankind. Jesus rose from the dead, demonstrating his victory over sin and death. Jesus has ascended to the Father. God the Father has given the kingdom to his Son. Since all those things to have taken place, Jesus' return is near in the sense that everything has been done for him to come back. Now, I have this wonderful memory as a child, and I, I am not sure this happened this way. And uh, this may be a memory that I have created but I had this memory of being in high school and going on a spring break trip, and my parents taking me out of, uh, out of uh, class early. 
So here I'm, I'm sitting in class in the morning, and I'm in high school, and I know that I could get the call to get out of class at any second. It could happen first hour, it could happen second hour, it could happen third hour. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know that it's going to happen at some point in that morning. I'm going to be taken out of class, and we're going to go on our family vacation. It was, it was imminent. It could happen at any time. And I, I lived in this anticipation that, it, that it, could, it could come. So the idea is that this waiting gave me a delicious sense of anticipation. Now, why is this such an important concept? The reason why is that the second coming of Jesus is not simply an event. Now, hear me on this. It is the central theme in the Bible. Now, just to digest that for a second, the second coming of Christ is related to the central theme in the Bible. What's the central theme in the Bible? The kingdom of God. Who's the king? Jesus. When Jesus ascended to the Father, the Father handed the rulership over all things to his Son. When Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven. What, what Jesus is saying, guys, I want you to pray right now that God's kingdom that's coming in the future would break into the present so that the supernatural is breaking into the natural, so that the power of God is breaking into the human structures of the present. So the idea is that Jesus is currently the king and he is coming back. And the, our charge is to, is to live in the kingdom presence of God all the time. That's why Paul said this. Paul said, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have, what? Been skeptical of his appearing. Been agnostic about his appearing. Wondered if it's really an important thing or not. Been confused about his appearing. No. The idea is that we would love his appearing because when he appears, that will be the culmination of his kingdom rule. That's why this is such an important theme and why it is, it is related to the central theme in the Bible. So the idea is, is, is that Jesus is, the idea is not that Jesus returns to destroy this nasty place, leaving it a scorched wreck. That's not the idea. Don't get me wrong, Jesus will definitely judge. The idea is that he will recreate this present heaven and earth into the new heavens and the new earth, and that he will rule from the new Jerusalem, and he will be king of kings and lord of lords forever. And we should sing the hallelujah chorus, like, right now, in celebration of that. And by his grace, those of us who love him will be ruling with him, and there will be new Mozarts and Nelson Mandela's and Michelangelo's and Beethoven's, women and men of brilliance who will exercise creativity in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why this is such an important theme in the Bible, and that's why Peter brings it up. So now we get to the so what question. So, okay, great. Okay, I value the fact that the culmination of all things is, is, is at hand. Great. He could return at any minute. What do I do now? What do I do now? So now he tells us what to do. The first response is an upward response, and the response is that we immerse ourselves in disciplines that build up our prayer life. 
So he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, zero in on the plural prayers. What he's saying is that your prayer life is not just a rote, one prayer fits everything kind of a thing. The idea is that there, there is a creativity and diversity in prayers that allows you to pray about all sorts of different things. Let me just give you a quick catalog. Uh, I use these all the time. Uh, this is a catalog of seven different types of prayer that are mentioned in the Bible. We have adoration or praise, confession, thanksgiving, supplication or making requests, and spiritual warfare prayers. We also have prayers of awareness where I'm sensing the nearness of God. I'm alert to what's going on. And there are intercessory prayers. So those are seven kinds of different prayers that you can pray. That's why Peter puts it in the plural, so that we will be diverse and creative in the way we address God. Uh, we could also look at the biblical authors and how they, how they model their prayer life. And as I look at the biblical authors, I see some creative expressions of prayers. We can journal our prayers. That's what the Psalms are all about. They're journaling their prayers to God. We can sing our prayers. We can pray over things in silence. We can pray in community. So if you have seven different types of prayer mentioned in the Bible and at least four different types of prayer modeled by the authors, there's infinite variety and creativity that we can use in our prayers. So the idea is that if Jesus is, is coming and if Jesus is the consummation of human history, why pray? Why devote ourselves to prayer? Because Jesus' kingdom has already started. And we're invited to pray that his kingdom rule would break forth into the present. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can pray that this afternoon. God, let your kingdom rule break through into my family. Let your kingdom rule break through into my finances. Lord, let your kingdom rule break through into my relationships, into my career, into my, into my work. The idea is that we, we need to pray robustly, because the culmination of all things is at hand, where Jesus is coming to, to rule. Uh, to do this, we have to watch out for the state of our minds. Remember he, that he says, be sober-minded? Be sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Be sober-minded in the sense that you focus your thoughts into an aspect of prayer that really works for you. So here's what I'm doing these days. I'm, uh, I'm keeping a journal. I did that for many years, especially when we lived in Baltimore. I kept a, just lots and lots of notes, no, notebooks. These days, I'm doing it a little bit differently, but I've gone back to journaling. I use a, a small lectiterm journal, and I do whole life journaling, meaning I use my journal to jot down notes of things I need to do because I love cooking. I write down recipes. But in my journal, I'm also pouring my heart out to God in prayer. Since all of life is spiritual, I want my entire journal to reflect my entire way of life. And so I, I love keeping, keeping this journal. I'm also maintaining a prayer list because I know my mind can wander when I pray. And I've got to have a bullet-pointed prayer list to keep my mind focused on what I'm doing. So that's the first response. Since Jesus is, is coming back as the coming king, man, we've got to ramp up our prayer life. Now we go to the outward response. 
Upward responses toward God, outward responses toward people. Since Jesus is returning, love people and serve them using your gifts. Next verse. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This word love is the word agape love. You've heard of that word, agape love? It's not romantic love. It's not infatuation love. It's not even necessarily a feeling type of love. It is a choosing love. And it's a love where sometimes you you must stretch in order to demonstrate that love. You're willing the best for another person. So I want you to imagine that you're at Churchill Downs, and it is the, it's the, it's the Kentucky Derby, and the, the horse that you're looking at is the horse called Greenlight Go. I'm not suggesting you should bet on that horse. I'm not suggesting that horse will win. I'm just using the horse as an illustration. And they go out of the starting gate, and what are these horses doing? What are the jockeys doing? They're stretching. They're straining. In some cases, they may get to the finish line, and it's a photo finish, and they know that just one quarter inch, one eighth of an inch is going to mean the difference between first or second, second or third, third or not placing at all. That's what agape love is like. You are willing the best in another, and sometimes you're stretching and straining and working in order to make that happen. Hard work is, I think, mentioned here when he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Like, you know, if if I'm not in agape love, I'm saying, hey, pal, you sinned against me? I'm done with you. Agape love says, no, I'm going to stretch and strain, and I'm going to cover that sin, and I'm going to treat you with, with grace. Now Peter gets more specific. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We're, all, we're talking about love here, right? Uh, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who supply, serves by the strength that God, that God supplies. Okay. In order that everything may be glorified, everything, in, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. So, uh, Peter mentions three components of love here. The first one is love is willing to extend hospitality to strangers without grumbling. Like, how many of you have been hospitable and you thought, you know, I wish these people would leave. I'm really tired. I've got a job. I've got to be up at 5.30 in the morning. I wish they would leave. And you're inside you're grumbling because they're challenging your, your hospitality. Another component is love means I actively use my spiritual gifts. Love means that I say to myself, self, you got a spiritual gift. You can use that spiritual gift to bless that person over there. And I'm going to actively use that gift to bless that person over there. That's what love does. You use your spiritual gifts in order to bless. The third component of love is love means we seek to operate in in God's power, not our human power. So there are times where I have to say, Holy Spirit, I cannot love my wife like Christ loves the church right now. I'm at a bad place. Maybe she's at a bad place. So in order for me to love, I have to have your supernatural power. Love does, love does that. Love is willing to depend upon the supernatural power of God in order to do something that we cannot do on our own strength. 
But the thing I'm interested in in these verses is not just the specific actions, but the overall culture. It's like what Peter is saying is, I want you to create around you cultures of genuine love. That is, uh, that's not easy, but that's what he's calling us to do. Now, here's the third response. we got the upward response toward God. We have the outward response toward people. Now we have the inward response that focuses in on, on us. And the inward response is this. We ramp up courage when we're opposed. We ramp up courage for our faith when we are opposed for our faith. He starts this way. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Notice the connection of our present suffering and the future glory of Christ's revelation. We don't, we don't tend to, to think about that. We don't tend to think about, okay, my suffering now is somehow connected to the second coming of Jesus. How are those connected? Well, they're connected in the sense that when Jesus is revealed, your, your body, your, resur- your resurrection body comes into its own. You may be dead and gone for many years, but you're raised up to be with him. So in other words, the idea is that Christ is coming, he's returning, and you will be in glory with him when he comes. Then he continues, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit and glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Ooh, that's where he's getting into some serious stuff, isn't he? You, 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 you could say, I'm, I'm not a murderer, doesn't, doesn't apply to me. Meddling? Oh my gosh. That applies to all of us. How many of you this week could say, I meddled? I meddled. Yep. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Again, he continues. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. There's a lot of words there. What I want to do is I want to just give you four observations about courage in suffering. Observation number one is don't be surprised. It is a courageous thing to not be surprised. Look, if you say, I'm going to get into the boxing ring and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to box or fill in the blank, karate or jujitsu, whatever martial art you, you like to do, and you're, you're there in the boxing ring, are you surprised when you receive a left hook to the jaw? Are you surprised? Well, you might be if you're not used to boxing. But you shouldn't be because that's what you sign up for when you get into the ring. If I get into the ring, I am going to be hit. If I uh, take karate, I, I, may be, I may be hit. I was taking karate when I was in college. And uh, as, as I was going to, to do a, a kick, I broke my little toe. I was surprised. I was surprised. But that's what happens when you, when you do these things. And so what he's saying is, don't be surprised when affliction, hardship, trial, and suffering comes upon you. You live in a fallen world. 
Stuff happens in in a fallen world. Don't be surprised. Ramp up some courage to deal with, wait a second, it shouldn't be this way. We all feel that way, but we live in a fallen world, and stuff happens in a fallen world. The second element of courage he describes in these verses is we refuse to give in to feelings of guilt and shame. I bring this up because the, the word Christian sounds fine to us, but when it was used in the first century, it was the term Christianoi, which was a weird term. Christianoi, in a way, is a Latinized version of the term Christ one. It's, it's almost like people were thinking that Christ is a proper name, and so the, the detractors of the Christian faith were using this as a corrupted proper name. And so this was a term of, of derision. So he's saying, you know, if, if you're suffering as a Christian, as one of those despised people, don't be surprised. So look, it takes courage to not give in to guilt and shame. I, I know people who were criticized for their faith, and they changed their theology. Why did they do that? Because they were ashamed. They didn't want to feel stupid or foolish or idiotic or old-fashioned or behind the times or one of those Christians. So they changed their theology to deal with the shame that they encountered being, being persecuted. And the third element of courage is we actively anticipate the Spirit's power. He says, you know, the Spirit is going gonna, is gonna to come upon you when you get persecuted. Anticipate that. Get, get ready for that to happen. Anticipate that He, in some way, is going to come. And then the fourth element is we keep entrusting ourselves to God moment by moment. We entrust ourselves to a Creator in doing those things which, which are, are right. So we have, we have this promise of Jesus' return. He's going to come, and history is going to come to its great climax. We've got an upward response toward God. We've got an outward response toward people. We've got an inward response toward us. So what do we do with this? What do we do? Some, so here's some takeaways about living in light of Christ's return. First takeaway is this. Don't downplay the return of Jesus in your thinking. Yes, Honestly, there are a lot of different viewpoints about the return of Jesus. There are some people who believe that Jesus will appear in the clouds, people will be raptured up to be with him, and then he will usher in seven years of tribulation, then he'll rule for a thousand years in Jerusalem before the ultimate state. That's one view. I happen to believe that view. There are others who I know and love who don't take that view. They take a different view. All I'm saying is this, don't downplay the return of Jesus in your thinking. Paul talks about cultivating this love for his appearing. And in part, what that means is that you, is that you say, I'm not going to give in to, it, to agnosticism about his return or cynicism about his return. I'm going to embrace this value. Second takeaway is to cultivate some emotions about Jesus' return about the imminent nature of it. So this past summer, when my daughter Sarah and her family were traveling from driving, just ugh, driving from Seattle to Bartlesville, that's a long drive, they hit storms in Kansas. And the storms were traveling at about, about I don't know, 50, 60 miles an hour. So they're, they're here, they're driving, and the storms are following them all the way across Kansas, like all the way across the state. And my daughter called me and she said, Dad, 
Either we're going to spend the night in Wichita, or we're going to go straight through and arrive in Bartlesville at about 3 a.m. in the morning. She called me 10.30 p.m. So, uh, okay, so her, her coming is imminent. What do we do? Made sure all the beds were in good shape. Um, I looked at the hours for the gathering place down in Tulsa, made sure we had the food that we need. I was preparing and getting ready for her to come. Did I feel any sense of, oh, they're coming? No, no, these are my grandchildren. I'm fired up that they're coming. The eminency of their coming gets me all fired up because I know we're in for a week of fun. Four kids under the age of 10. Ah, oh, couldn't wait. So I'm cultivating emotions. Now, they knocked on the door at 3 o'clock in the morning. And then I go, what in the world are you here for? I thought you were staying in Wichita. No, I said, come on in. Come on in. You got, do you need anything? We just want some sleep. Okay, great. Come on up into the bedroom. We'll, we'll make it all quiet. We'll, we'll have breakfast for you in the morning. I'm doing things in light of their return. And that, those, are the, those are the emotions that we should have as well. And then a third, a third takeaway is this. At Grace, we want to be a place um, that fellowships with people in pain. Look, he's talking about suffering in this, in this verse, uh, in these verses. Suffering is going to heat up in the last days. And if that's the case, then our expression of the body of Christ here at Grace means we've got to be a safe harbor for people in pain. We have to be a safe harbor for people in pain. And so we want to hold on to two things simultaneously at Grace. Life can be hard, but God is good. We live in a fallen world, but we can enjoy the life of the kingdom in the body of Christ. Those two things are not antithetical. They work together. And so at Grace, we want to be a foretaste of God's kingdom even as we still live in a fallen world. Being a foretaste of God's kingdom means that we exude the grace and truth of Jesus in all of our ministries of grace. Now, we do this really well at Celebrate Recovery, at the landing, at Celebration, uh, Celebration Station. We're doing this more and more skillfully at the other ministries as well. But we, have, we at Grace, we, we don't like legalism. We don't like inauthenticity. We don't like places where people feel shamed. We like to be a place where grace and truth come together and people really encounter the person of Jesus, the kingdom presence of Jesus in their midst. And so as a church, we are, we are endeavoring to be a place that fellowships skillfully, well, with people who are encountering pain. You know, if you think about it, um, in a way, um, the only sure sign of Jesus' eminent return in the year 2019 is Matthew 12, 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nation, nations, and then the end shall come. That's an incredible verse. What it says is that Jesus' coming is very near when the gospel is preached around the world. Well, there are 194 nations around the world today, and guess what? There is an expression of the gospel in every nation around the world. There are Bibles in 
many of the languages around the world. Could Jesus' return be near? Absolutely it could. Therefore, we ought to be all the more diligent to do the things that Peter's talking about. The upward response toward God, the outward response toward people, the inward response toward us.